Welcome to the Fantasy Canon Podcast, where we discuss the classics of fantasy fiction from yesterday and today. I'm your host, David Charlton. And I'm your host, Chris Whedon. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll be discussing Dragons of Autumn Twilight, the first book of the Dragonlance Chronicles trilogy by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. This is actually the second episode discussing that book. We will take the second half of that book today and discuss it. Please be advised that there will be spoilers galore. We will talk about the story, characters, and themes of this book. So if you haven't read the book and don't want to be spoiled, please come back to this episode at a later date. So, you know, we're discussing the uh, second part of the Dragons of Autumn Twilight, the first volume of Chronicles. The first book is divided into two parts. Book one and book two. And book one follows the companions uh, from the start through their adventure in Zaxaroth. The second, the second book is kind of a, a new adventure, and it takes them in a different direction. Uh, and but the two, by the way, in length, the two are not even. The first, that first half is actually quite a bit longer, right? It, it is indeed. And I meant to ask you, and this is the best place to do it. Um, yeah. The books being split the way that they are are they uh do they follow the modules as well so and that's what i was going to say actually that's a good observation the dragons of autumn twilight does indeed do that it follows dl1 dragons of despair and dl2 dragons of flame book one is dragons of despair book two in autumn twilight is dragons of flame so and that that was sort of the Weiss and Hickman's remit from TSR, the Dragonlance project um, from the beginning, was to novelize these D&D adventures. But in writing Dragons of Autumn Twilight, one thing the authors discovered is it made the book very episodic. Um, and it didn't quite make for a drama in which you know the characters could grow and have arcs and there would be better dramatic cohesion um so autumn twilight is the only book in all of the dragonlance books that follows that pattern of of being adapted directly from the modules so they changed it up so the the next book dragons of autumn twilight uh was written oh excuse me i'm sorry dragons of winter's night uh was written first and then the the modules were were designed and written to sort of flow around that. And the same thing with Spring Dawning um, for the next set of modules. Um, to kind of give you an idea of the time frame, the you know, we talked about the like the production schedule of Dragonlance, how the first things to come out were a couple of short stories in Dragon Magazine. Um, well, actually, yeah, I think um, Time of the Tw- or Test of the Twins by Margaret Weiss, which talked about Caraman and Raceland and Raceland's test at the Tower of High Sor- Sorcery. And then Roger E. Moore's A Stone's Throw Away, which is a story about Tasseloff Burfoot encountering a woolly mammoth and a crazy wizard. Those were both published prior to Autumn Twilight coming out as sort of like a tease in Dragon to um, advertise the coming of the, the Dragonlance project. Those came out, I think, at the end of 83 or early of 84. DL1, the adventure module Dragons of Despair, came out in March of 84. Dragons of Autumn Twilight came out in November of 84. There's a big gap between um, the modules. uh, Dragons of Despair, Dragons of Flame, DL3 is called Dragons of Hope, and DL4, I believe, is called Dragons of Devastation. 
that's that's the whole autumn grouping of the story of uh, those four adventure modules that tell kind of the opening the big opening story of the Dragonland saga takes place in the the autumn months uh those all came out from march to i don't know sometime in the autumn of uh, 2000 or uh, 1984 for what it's worth dragon uh, dl5 dragons of mystery also came out in 1984 that wasn't an adventure module however it was it was a source book it kind of gave you some background on the world of Kryn, um the gods the characters how the characters met so there, there's actually some really neat stuff in that source book but the dragons of autumn twilight only covers dl1 and dl2 uh, okay so let's uh let's get to book two so book two opens the same way book one opens with tika whalen at the end of the last home but why is it different chris well for a couple of reasons first of all it doesn't have a kitchen anymore at least not in the same place that it used to be uh second of all it uh, if they have to get out, they don't have to jump anywhere except down to the ground because it's no longer in the trees. Yeah, the great wonder of solace that there was a treetop town uh, is no longer. The dragon armies invade it. Uh, it was a night of terror. The dragons came in. They killed and burned. A dragon actually physically picked up the inn ripped it out of the tree and dropped it on the ground. And the only reason the inn itself was spared and not burned like all of the other homes is because they needed it as sort of like a, a place to gather. And they're not just destroying everything. They're occupying places as well. Um, so this is Sol Solace is now an occupied town. And this is the town that the companions come into, return home to. They gather again at the end of the last home, wondering what their next step is. And they they get into some trouble. They 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 see Tika. You know she she's terrified. She's at her wits' end. But when the companions walk in, she um, she gets really excited. She has hope. Um, she really dotes on Caraman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a harbinger of things to come. Not only for Tika and Caraman, but it kind of sets a more adult theme moving through the rest of the books yeah not, not in any kind of you know no. raunchy just just you know they realize these are adults now so and this is the story we're telling because again tika is a beautiful young woman who is who has grown in, into a far more beautiful woman than caramon expected she th there is a famous anecdote in um the, uh, behind the scenes Dragonlance in the annotated chronicles the editor talks about a poem that they could not include in the book it's the shortest shortest poem uh, and <laughs> there it has, once was a man from solace i'm sorry close close but it has to do with um you know when tika starts gathering her makeshift armor she's got a helmet here a, a leg guard here a, a breastplate here that sort of thing um, but as a consequence, like her, her skirt gets ripped and you can, you know, you can kind of see all the way up her leg and, um, the poem by Michael Williams, the guy who wrote the song of Hama Huma and the Canticle of the Dragon is Dragonlance, Dragonlance. I see Tika's underpants. <laughs> so, see, that's why it's fun to read the annotated chronicles. You get a lot of like funny little, um, inside nuggets of information <laughs> um all right so we're in the end of the last home the companions are 
are there. Um, and there's a party of draconians that are that that walk in and they're kind of bullies, obviously. They just took over the town. Um, but they're there's they're there, they're drinking and they're eating, they're taunting Tika, like sexually taunting her. Um, saying that they could satisfy her. Uh, you know, Caraman gets really offended on her behalf. So things are getting tense. There's another figure in the inn, a hooded, cloaked and hooded figure, um, who's staring at the party like he knows them. He starts coming over to them as he hears them speaking, and one of the Draconian pulls his hood off and notices that it's an elf. Elves are not common in and solace especially after the dragon armies have attacked and the dragon armies led by lord verminard have uh, sworn to exterminate the elves so that sets them off so the companions jump up to defend the self who i th- i think at this point tanis identifies as an elf named gilthanis there's a quick scuffle they are about ready to try to escape through the back door and Tika's like they did at the beginning of the book. And Tika's like, Oh, there is no back door anymore. This is it. <laughs> Realizing that they're trapped. Few master toady walks in through the front door. And you remember few master toady from the beginning of the book. He's that big, ugly hobgoblin who attacked them in the very first chapter. Right. There's this a kind of a cool scene here. So they're, they're pretty much surrounded. There's no way they can fight themselves out of this. They're going to get captured. They're captured, right? Uh, but there's a cool scene here where Fumaster Toad says, all right, we're rounding all these people up. We're going to throw them in the slave caravans, take them off to the mines of Pax Tharkis, um, get their weapons. Raceland doesn't want to give up the Staff of Magius. Sturm doesn't want to give up his ancestral sword. Um so as they're throwing their weapons into a pile, Sturm won't do it. And Raceland basically says to Sturm, look, tr- trust me, I'll take care of this. I got this. So before the Draconians and the few master can take their weapons, Raceland does like a bit of hocus pocus over the pile of weapons. And he tells them that I've placed a curse on these weapons and whoever takes them will be devoured by the demon Caterpelius <laughs> from the abyss. <laughs> You know, the goblins and the draconians and the few master, they're all kind of dumb and credulous, and they take him for his word. Um, so they bundle up the weapons and they Sturm's ancestral blade is not stolen by the, the goblins. It's just it's just a nice moment between Sturm and Raceland, and you don't get many of those. Um, and it's significant because there's a callback to it in the next book that is um, really one of the few nice moments between Raceland and Sturm. <laughs> Caraman says, "Wow!" Afterwards, he says, "That was a that was a good spell, Race. Where'd you get where'd, where'd you come up with that? It was Caterpelius or whatever." And Race is like, "You dummy!" He shows him his hand, and it's got like flash powder burns. It was all just like ledger domain. Just Raceland yeah. being the sly one. All right, so they're all loaded onto the the slave caravan, uh, getting ready to get, uh, get uh, transported to the south to the mines, and we get a little bit about Gilthanus because uh, he's captured or thrown into the the caravan with them. Uh, t- tell us about Gilthanus, Chris. Who is this guy, this elf? Gilthanus is actually the son of the Speaker of the Sun of Qualanost. Yeah. Uh, Qualanost is the elven realms to the south. It is, yeah. it is one of the two elven realms, uh, along with Sylvanesti, uh, which is the actual birthplace of the elves. Uh, but Qualanost is uh, where Tanis spent a lot of time. Uh, when he was a young man, 
so he is quite well acquainted with Gilthanus as well as Gilthanus's sister, Lorana. Yep. And um, Gilthanus calls him Tantalus. He does, which is his elven name, Tantalus, yep. Uh, yep. which I believe is a surprise to pretty much everybody in the party. I don't think they come straight out and say that, but it's not something that they would ever call him in any way, shape, or form. So, no. Tannis shortened shortened his name when he went to live among humans. Yep, yep, yep. absolutely. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, like you said, Gilthanus is the son of the Speaker of the Sun of Qualinesti. He was on a mission to rise up against the dragon armies and basically a, um, a delaying mission, too, because there's something going on with uh, the elves. Uh, that'll become obvious in a little bit. But he straight up says, Lord Verminar, the leader of the dragon armies, has vowed to exterminate the elves because he is the son of the speaker's brother's wife. Uh, it's a specific, you, you got to be careful how you phrase that. And normally he would be the nephew of the speaker, but because his mother was raped by a human outlaw, the there is no blood relation there. But he was brought up in the household with his uh, would-be cousins, uh, Gilthanus, uh, his older brother, Portheos, and their younger sister, Lorana. Tanis and Lorana had a relationship and he grew because of his half human blood he grew up faster and the infatuation that lorana had um with tanis uh gilthanus found out about it and even though gilthanus and tanis were like brothers there was no way tanis was good enough for his sister at that point tanis was essentially run out of qualinost and that's when he hooked up with flint and eventually found a home in solace so there's there's a lot of background in meeting Gilthanus here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's Gil another... Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say there's another person that is brought to the the cage. They're, they're in this cage in the caravan. It's like a like a traveling circus. Like you'd have a circus animal. Like you'd see like a elephant in a cage, not like a rail car. It's set of like one of those, except they're, they're drawn by like donkeys. Actually, I think they're drawn by like elk it's elk or something yeah yeah elk, elk right yeah so they throw someone else in the in the cage with them and who is that uh that would be uh theros ironfeld who is the blacksmith of solace he's busted up bad he tried to fight back and uh, he lost not only did he lose but he lost an arm and yeah. it's bleeding profusely when they throw him into the cage he was trying to help the elves. In fact, that's why Gilthanus was was still in Solace. He was trying to, I think he was trying to get Theros Ironfeld out of there. He's distraught. Theros looks like he's going to die. You don't just get your arm ripped off and live through that, especially in primitive times like this. And Goldmoon approaches him, and Gilthanus is pretty condescending and rude to her. But she heals him, and Gilthanus sees for himself this the evidence of the true guys returning to Kryn and this barbarian woman. By the way, I don't think we've ever said it before, but the Plains people have been referred to throughout the whole thing as barbarians. I don't know if that's a call out to the D&D &D character class or if they call them barbarians because they don't have the type of civilization or societal culture that the rest of the continent has or what have you. But the Plains people are called barbarians. I'll say two things about that quickly. The first is that uh, no, barbarians were not a class in first edition. I don't think they became a class until second edition. So 
Um, I believe the Barbarians is there as a um, descriptor for all of the conflicts that are going on, because part of what you said with Gilthanus and Tannis is is that Gilthanus is disgusted by his Tannis's half human uh, ancestry. Not not maybe not especially how he got it, but because he has it and he right. is less for it. And right. and Gold Moon and Riverwind are even lower down the scale because, as they said, they are barbarians. Right, right. There's so, a there's a prejudice, I guess, is the word I was looking for. That's we haven't really talked about it yet. It's really just kind of first comes up here. But the the elves j- blame the humans for the cataclysm. They they feel like the fact that the gods left Kryn because of the hubris of the king priest. So th- there's a lot of resentment there. And in the years after the cataclysm, there was a lot of wars. Um, there was actually there was a war in Abyssinia where all of this is taking place so far. The the elves shut off their lands you can see it right in the person of tanis uh he is the product of a violence between human and elves so there, there's some of that that comes into play uh there as well all right so and then uh you know the next day the slave caravan starts up and we we meet uh another new character and it's uh another gully dwarf he's kind of a fun character his name is seston and he is Fewmaster toad's i don't know assistant i guess go-to guy right hand man boy. whipping boy more like but as the caravan is trundling south um he does tend to strike up conversations with taz or taz strikes up conversations with him they they sort of become friends he does he comes back later but he doesn't stay with the companions um but they do pick up one more passenger there's an old guy that's sitting on a boulder getting some sun but he's mad at a tree for block for creating shade and blocking the direct sunlight who is this guy he's just this crazy old wizard named fizban he's a great character because he seems to be so demented but he has moments of clarity yeah he's that befuddled stereotype of a wizard right um, he's got mm. the shapeless hat, the robes that were maybe once white. He's got the staff, and he's uh, absent-minded. He, he's Merlin from the the Disney Sword in the Stone. That's basically who we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they never really come out and say it, but he's the old man from the first chapter, first couple of chapters of the book in the end of the last home, who rearranges the furniture, and then he's a storyteller. I don't think the companions ever make the connection with him for that. No, but, they do yeah. not. No. He pisses off the few master and he gets thrown in the cage with the companions. And the first thing he does, he strikes up a conversation with Raceland and he recognizes him as, as a, a fellow magic user. And Raceland sees something in him. Yeah, he's he's very um disturbed may not be the right word, but he is terrified. Uh Fisbin does something to Raceland to make him kind of forget what he knows or not realize what he's seeing i think we're meant to think that fisbin is communicating with that voice in raceland's head that we first heard um when raceland was about ready to commit suicide in the dragon slayer but oh and by the way do you know where we get where they got the the name fisbin i do not i bet you do (laughs) Um, (laughs) you might not realize you know but you know um Will it, will it help if I tell you that Tracy Hickman is, a, again, a big Star Trek original series fan? Oh, wow. Um, no, it doesn't help. 
Well, okay. Do you remember Captain Kirk sitting down? I think it was in that episode called A Piece of the Action when Kirk and Spock go to that planet that they're all like 1930s gangsters. And Oh, Kirk sure. Sits- I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. So Kirk sits down and he, uh, he's playing cards and he's got to, I don't know, delay them or whatever, distract them. And he goes, all right, this one is called, this game I call Fizbin. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And for what it's worth, uh, that particular character, Fizbin, also shows up in a couple of other Weiss and Hickman non-TSR, non-Dragonlance books as well. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, they they can't call him Fizbin because Fizbin is owned uh, by, well, Wizards of the Coast now. But I think he's called Zifnab or Zafnib or something like that in the other books. (laughs) But his, his personality is exactly the same. It's the same character. Uh, now, So they've got a full complement in this cage. Uh, and as they're getting ready to, they, I guess they just cross over the river. And they're, they're pretty close to the borders of the elf lands. And that's when an ambush happens. Um, arrows start whizzing out of the trees. And, and Gilthanus seems to have recognized what's going on. It's like he's, he was expecting this. And while this is all happening, Fisbin is trying to get them out of the cage. And what he winds up doing is casting Fireball and almost blowing them all up. <laughs> but while, while the cage is on fire, because Fireball didn't quite do the job on the, the bars, uh, Seston comes up and uh, whacks the lock off the cage door. And they're all, they all manage to get out before the, the cage uh, just burns to cinders. So uh, they, it finds out that it's the elves that uh, ambush the caravan, uh, led by Portheos, Gilthanus' older brother, who also knows Tanis. He was also raised with Tanis. And um, they uh, free the slaves and they tell them, go, go back to your homes or go wherever you want to go. Uh, but you guys, meaning the companions, are coming with us. And that, that sort of pisses off Goldmoon, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, she she has a quest and she is, you know, bound to go where it is that she feels that she needs to go. And this is yep. an imposition she's not real happy about. But this is also another example of the elves not really caring what happens to the humans. He's just like, OK, yeah, humans can go and reap the consequences of what you brought to the world. You're lucky we we freed you from the slave caravans. He Portheos notices that Gold Moon has that amulet, and Gelthanus tells him about the true healing of Theros Ironfeld. Um, so they're all escorted uh, into Qualinesti, and so we're we're in the Elflands now. Nothing significant happens until they get to Qualinost, which is the chief city of Qualinesti, and um, the companions are brought to the Tower of the Sun the quintessential elf tower in the middle of the quintessential elf city. They're greeted by Solastarin, who is the speaker of the sun. He kind of loses his shit a little bit when he sees gold moon. You remember why? Because she's claiming the power of a cleric of a true cleric. And remember true clerics haven't been seen since the couple of nights before the cataclysm when all the true clerics were taken up and assumed into heaven. Uh, they were they were sort of what do you call it? They were raptured, <laughs> yeah. and, and and he still blames the humans fully. And I believe Gold Moon's retort is something to the effect of, you know, you say we brought this upon you, you know, what did you do? You know, where where were your guys? Yeah. Your guys couldn't yeah. do anything either. So there's a lot of like racial stereotyping and racial prejudices all throughout these, especially these early books, but it's all because they're setting up 
a situation in which this place, these lands, these people are not going to survive unless they can overcome that. So this story is not about the racial prejudices. It's about finding their common ground and or and rising above that in order to save the world. I'm sorry, just a really quick aside. I don't remember if you remember this or not, but <clears throat> excuse me, in the, the first edition player's handbook, there's actually a table of all the races and how they get along with each other. So it's it's kind of baked in. I mean, I keep going huh. back to the things that make this part of Dungeons and Dragons and how they all fit together. But there is actually a table in there that says, you know, elves love elves. Elves are neutral towards humans. Elves hate dwarves. You know, and it, it works for a whole bunch of different races. So Wow. Yeah. Huh. All right. That, that is interesting. I didn't realize that it, uh, it went that far deep. Yep. Yeah. They go into it because they've got to be able to make it so that it's significant when they overcome it. Celestarin, to his credit, does sort of start that journey here. He apologizes to Goldmoon. Um, he's actually brought to task by Fizzman. The, the befuddled old wizard kind of tells Celestarin, kind of tells him off a little bit, I think. But the companions learn here that things are not as safe in the Elflands as they've been led to believe. The dragon armies. Um, are assailing them on all sides. There's an enormous army that's at Pax Tharkis getting ready to invade. And when that happens, the elves cannot defend themselves. The forests are going to burn and um, they're going to get slaughtered. Uh, so they're fleeing. They're leaving. They're, they're, it's, a, it's an exodus. They're getting ready to take ship and go west over the sea. Not oh, as it... Wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not to Valinor or the Undying Lands, but some other place. Yeah, Sylvanesti. No, no. They're going to Urgoth. Are they're they? Southern, yeah, they're going to Southern Urgoth. Oh. They'll, they'll meet the Sylvanesti there because they've already <laughs> fled. Ah, well, yeah. see, there you go. Yeah, because the dragon armies all across Ancelon are on this crusade to exterminate the elves. Uh, they're invading elven homelands, and as a consequence, the elves all have to flee. They're all leaving. And they're leaving to these islands that are off the west coast of Ancelon. Um, I believe it's Southern Urgoth. There's two uh, two main islands, Northern Urgoth and Southern Urgoth. And I believe it's Southern Urgoth that um, both nations of elves are fleeing to, where they've set Isn't up... Is that the home of the Minthotors? Nope, that's on the far east side. That's Mythos and Kothos, I believe. Yeah. See, it's been a million yeah. years since I read it. Yep, that's right. So it's a pretty desperate time in Qualanost. And remember, this is a homecoming for Tannis. He was born and raised in this city. And he is seeing it with new eyes as this quiet desperation of these people, of these people who are, are leaving all that they've ever known for a thousand years or more. They um, are given a choice to help. And essentially what this choice boils down to is they need a party to go to Pax Tharkis, where there is a lot of human slaves and to raise the slaves against the dragon armies as a diversion and to keep the dragon armies pinned down in Pax Tharkis, giving the elves time to escape. Now that doesn't sit well with the, with the humans in the party like Sturm and Caramon who are essentially thinking, well, that's not cool. I mean, you're, you're using the humans as, you know, cannon fodder. But at the end, it's the only chance that the elves have, and it is a fighting chance for the humans to escape the, the bondage of 
this conquering force, right? Yeah, the, um, the mines that they're working are almost played out, and they're most assuredly going to get killed by Lord Verminard. Right. Oh, and, and by the way, we should say, although I think it goes without saying, that it was Lord Verminard who attacked Solace, and it was his, his red dragon, who I think they called Ember, who ripped the inn out of the tree and dropped it on the ground. There's a grudge match kind of built built in here. Um, so Gilthanus is the one who is going to be leading a party to Pax Tharkis, and the companions agree to accompany Gilthanus and uh, see if they could raise the humans against Verminard. But we also meet an important person in Qualanost, uh, someone that's going to be extremely important uh, for the rest of the story. Maybe the most important person, frankly, for the rest of the story, a case can be made. And who is this, Chris? Uh, it's the aforementioned Lorana. Laurelan <laughs> She is the woman who is infatuated with Tannis. She still uh, holds uh, quite a, a large flame for him and is super happy that he's back. Um, as a matter of fact, now they can be together. If everyone remembers, we started at the very, very beginning uh, with everyone meeting at the Inn in Solace, and Tannis was kind of bummed out that Raceland and Caramon's sister, Kidiara, had not accompanied them because he had finally uh, settled the battle in his soul and he was going to give in to his human side and be with a human woman. And now we meet Lorana and she has, uh, she has grown into a beautiful elf woman. She is reminding uh, Tannis that he does have, you know, another side to himself. And it's very uncomfortable for him to be reminded of that because he thought he was, he thought he was pretty dead set. He was going to go with Kitiara. And Lorana is a fantastic character. When we first meet her, she, she's gives the impression of being a frivolous, spoiled, daughter of the ruler of Qualanesti. Um, they were, he, she and Tannis were, had some sort of childhood betrothal, um, and she intends to hold him to that when she sees him again. But she's, she's not, when I say, she, when I say she's frivolous, it's just that she doesn't, she has, she lacks a seriousness because she's never had the type of adversity in her life that she is about to experience. She's never had oh, yeah. to grow up. Um, and, she is about ready to have to grow up <laughs> um, because Tannis drops a truth bomb on her. And what does he tell her? <laughs> We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, no part of it. And basically he tells her that, um, look, I'm in love with a human woman. And what we had was childish. It was in the past. It's, it wasn't real. Uh, and she said, but I gave you a ring. It's a kind of a callback because it's a ring that was mentioned earlier in the story as one of the items that Tasselhoff somehow acquired. Tannis found in Taz's pouch as they're going through some maps. She's like, Taz, is that my ring? <laughs> Taz is like, oh, yeah. I'm glad must I be. found it. You must have dropped it. Here you go. Uh, so Tannis, at this point, takes off the ring, gives it back to Lorana, and, you know, when someone takes off their engagement ring and gives it back to you, I mean, that says, that's a statement, right? <laughs> yeah. So Lorana throws the ring. She just throws it away, and she 
storms off upset she's crying and by the way what happens to that ring do you remember uh yeah tasselhoff finds it and sticks it in his pouch it's not just that he finds it he was eavesdropping we see this scene actually through tasselhoff's eyes as he's eavesdropping on Tana Salarana. So, and, and this sort of settles the, this squashes the beef between Tannis and Gilthanis, by the way, because this was always why Gilthanis resented Tannis. Um, he never thought that Tannis, quote, a half breed, should be with his sister, the great granddaughter, great great granddaughter of Kith Cannon, the founder of Qualinesti. So that that's settled. Um, Gilthanis uh, feels better about that, and they all head off the next morning to Paxtharkis on their mission. And their their eventual plan, by the way, is to find something called the Slamori. Um, it means remember. secret way. Secret Slamori way. Means secret way. Secret way. Thank you. Yeah, they head south and find uh, the remnants of a battle. It's a big nasty battle. A lot of dead people. A lot of dead draconians. Looks like there's a whole uh, nobody's survived. Uh, they hear some noise or see some movement, and they notice that there is a man who is buried underneath uh, several draconians or hobgoblins. He happens to be one of the uh, members of Gilthanis' secret squad that was going to Solace with Gilthanis to help get the elves out of Solace. Uh, and Gilthanis is surprised to see him because he thought that entire party had been wiped out. He thought he was the only one that had survived. Eben um, Shatterstone, right? Eben Shatterstone, yes, that's his name. So, And he seems to be a pretty handsome fella, uh, pretty good with a sword, and he's more than willing to, to jump in with the rest of them. Um, he's got nothing better to do from a rich family that's kind of down on its luck, but uh, he's made his living with his sword, and he's, you know, he's ready to jump in and, and just help them do what it is that they said they were going to do. Yeah. Uh, so he joins the party. I always, um, when I read Eben Shatterstone, I always imagine him as, who's that guy? Uh, God, he, he, he died just a couple of years ago. He, an actor, he played in Weird Science. He was the older brother, Chet. He was an alien. He was the Marine. Oh, it's, alien. um. It's, um, oh, crap. Yeah, yeah. Game over, I, man. Game fucking over from Aliens. <laughs> I'll tell you his name in half a second. Hang on now. He was in True <laughs> Lies as well. He was the used car salesman. One of my favorite movies of all time, Tombstone. Oh, was he in that too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's one of the brothers. Yeah, he's okay. one of the brothers. It's uh, Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. He was in Titanic. Yeah. So I don't know. Evan Shatterstone for me is always Bill Paxton with mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> I even like, I hear his voice doing uh, Evan's dialogue too. <laughs> Game over, man. Game over, man. Game fucking over. Uh, he was in Tornado right. too, wasn't he? Not Tornado. Twister, yeah. Twister. Twister. Yeah. yeah. Right. He was the main guy in Twister. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so so they they pick up Evan, and uh, and by the way, they this is another one of those weird interludes uh, where as they're traveling to the Slamori, where Goldmoon and Tika have a conversation, and yes. it's it's about Tika and Karaman's growing attraction towards each other, 
Uh, so apparently Tika is not quite as, quote, experienced as Karaman thinks she is. And um, so essentially she's a virgin and she's having like this conversation with Gold Moon about, um, you know, what Karaman's expectations might be and what she should do about it. And Gold Moon's like, well, you'll know when it's the right time, basically. <laughs> Actually, she tells her, she says, you know, you should wait. You know, me and Riverwind, we've been waiting for freaking right, years, right. but we're going to wait until we're married. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like one of those uh, one to grow on interludes. <laughs> After school special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and not to backtrack a little bit, but just to stay on Tika for a second. When they first met uh, Lorana back at Qualanost, everyone just sort of like gaped, gawped at her. I mean, they were staring. She was a vision of absolute beauty. Even Raceland, whose hourglass eyes only ever see the decay of flesh, saw someone that was youthful and beautiful. Taz wanted to know what was going on. Why is everybody just staring or whatever? And he notices that like Tika's looking real self-conscious. She's like flouncing her hair and trying to arrange her clothes or whatever. And Tika's like, you know, is this freckled, big busted barmaid in front of this willowy supermodel elven princess, you know? And she's looking, she said, nothing. Karaman is just making a big jerk of himself over there, drooling. <laughs> it was just like a funny, funny scene. And to Lorana's credit, like one of the scenes that she has with Tika, I don't know if it's now or later, whatever it is, um, but she like instantly disarms Tika and she like points out how beautiful Tika is and the color of her hair. And it's just one of those things where even Tika is won over by the charm of Lorana. And that's best part of the beauty of this particular character. Cause she's not only physically beautiful, but she's internally and emotionally beautiful as well. And Tannis is just a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> Which, which is why I picked Dan, which is why I picked Tannis in the last episode because I'm kind of a dumbass. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, if you had to choose between Kitiara and Lorana, who would you choose? And let's save that for later. But think about it. Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um. Okay. So they uh they find they finally found the underground passage to the secret way, the Slamori. And it's we it, all of a sudden we're in another dungeon crawl. As they're crawling through the dark, um, they realize that they're being followed. And who is it, Chris? Who's stalking them through the the slamori? It's Lorana, a pampered elven princess who all she had to do was stay at home and flee with her people across the sea. Yeah, she wants to. She wants to prove herself to Tannis. She wants to prove that she can do this. Yeah. Tannis thinks it's irresponsible and immature, but in reality, it's really a young woman finding out what she is capable of and going after what she believes in, which is what she believes is true love. Um, well, it's, it's actually what Tannis had told her as well, too. You know, you have to, sometimes you have to do the things that you believe in. Tannis is full of those little nuggets of wisdom. That's why he's their leader. Yeah, and he's also a dumbass. He's both. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one is not one is not exclusive of the other. No, both things can be true. Yeah. Um, all right. So we encounter uh, we encounter a couple of things. There's a there's a uh, they they have a random monster encounter of a giant slug. 
in the slamore. Now, before you go on, there's actually something rather significant there. It turns out that the secret way into uh, Pax Tharkis is through the crypts of the elves who had previously inhabited the castle. And before the, the slug attacks, they are actually in the burial chamber of Kith Cannon. And he is, uh, he is seated on his throne, and he has a scabbarded sword across his lap. Yeah. So, now, who is, who is Kith Cannon, Chris? Do you remember? Uh, he is the uh, founder of Qualanost. That's right. Yes, he is the first king of, of Quelanesti. Um, he led his people from their ancestral homelands in Sylvanesti during the Kinslayer Wars, which was a conflict uh, that happened I don't know, a couple thousand years ago, whatever it was, between the elves and the humans, uh, the human empire of Urgoth and the elven nations. Um, I think the dwarves were involved in it in some sense. The end of those wars was commemorated in something called the Sword Sheath Scroll. That was the treaty that ended the Kinslayer Wars. And as a token of the friendship of the races, this mighty fortress of Pax Tharkis was built on the borders between the Elven and the Dwarven kingdoms. Between the mm -hmm. Elven and the Dwarven lands, I should say. Yeah. Um, and it was built by both of them together. Right. It was a monument of cooperation. And that's where Kith Cannon decided that he was going to be interred. Uh, buried in this crypt beneath this fortress. And this is, by the way, Lorana's great-great-great-grandfather, or whatever, however many greats going back. Not that many, because elves live a long time. Tannis is, Lorana is not quite that old. Gilthanis and Portheos are, but um, she is still considered a young, whereas uh, Salastarin was around during the um, Cataclysm, and that was 351 years before the start of this story. And, and by the way, Kith Cannon is just sitting on his throne. He is just like a mummified king on a chair it's it's kind of a weird way to inter the the great king of quilonesti yeah but it turns out to be to our hero's advantage because uh the slug has got um and this is <clears throat> excuse me another bit of D, D interacting with the story itself there are certain creatures that can only be hit by magical weapons yeah. or certain types of weapons and take any kind of damage. So uh, at one point uh, during the fight with the slug, uh, Tannis loses his weapon, and he's backed up against the uh, he's backed up against the throne of Kith Cannon. He he's reaching around, searching around, looking for something that he can use in the battle, and his hand grasps the the hilt of a sword. And he just dives in and starts hacking, and it turns out it's actually doing some pretty good damage, and they run the slug off. It's after the battle that he he realizes that uh, when Taz brings him the scabbard of the sword, uh, Tannis, <clears throat> Tannis turns to, I, I'm not sure who it was, might have been Taz, but he says, Kith Cannon handed me the sword. Yeah, that's interesting, I quote, half-breed, like Tannis, being given the sword of the most royal of Qualanesti's elves. Mm -hmm. uh, so the party splits up at this point because they're attacked again by a... It's a banshee, essentially, but it's, it's I think they call it a dark elf. They do, yes. Do they, do they actually call it a drow? 
Uh, yes. They call it. They do call it a drow, right? They, they do. Yes. So drow, as we know them from other uh, media, don't exist on Kryn. They're they're not like Drizzt and dark skinned, white haired, double saber wielding ranger badasses. <laughs> the the advent of this banshee causes the party to to scatter, and essentially Taz and Fisben are separated from the rest of them, and um, they both. Um, Groups get into the fortress of Paxtharchus, and Taz and Fisben wind up in a room where they see a, a mural painted. And this mural is pretty significant because what does it depict? A battle uh, of dragons, which to this point, <clears throat> excuse me, the only dragons we know about are the black dragon Kisanth. And we know of Ember, who is a red dragon. So we know only about evil dragons. But this mural has gold dragons and silver dragons. And it has riders on their backs. And they are wielding the dragon lances. And Fizban gives Taz a subliminal command and says, you know, you're not going to remember this right now, but it'll come in handy later. You can remember this later. This Fizban, he's... um... He's doing some stuff a befuddled, crazy old wizard shouldn't really be doing. Yeah, that's that, like I said, he has his lucid moments, but yep. you know, he, he he's kind of crazy, and he he loves that fireball. God, he loves that fireball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's going to come up again, right? Um, because as Taz and Fisman are exploring inside the passages, they come across where they are able to look down into another throne room. And they are the first ones to spot Lord Verminard. And this guy is a scary dude. Yeah, absolutely. Big old dragon mask, physically imposing. You know, he's very in command. I mean, he's so in command that he commands an adult red dragon. Yeah. Do you remember the cover of DL2, Dragons of Flame? It's that picture by Jeff Easley of... uh, it's Taz spying like around a column. You see him from behind, and on the and facing you is Verminard pointing towards Taz, and behind him is the Ember, the great red dragon, whose dragon name is Pyros. I believe. Pyros, yes. Yeah. But Taz and Fisbin uh overhear Verminard talking with Ember, who is in a, I believe he's in his human form. Uh, when they first see him, um, he's Verminard. Verminard commands him to to go into his human form, yeah. and I believe this scene is before Fizban and Taz actually see them. So, yeah, together, yeah. they what they do see though is making a report to Verminard, and Verminard just getting pissed off about it. And they're talking about the um, the elves escaping and the caravan losing the losing the caravan. What's that? Toad brings two prisoners. He's trying two to save prisoners. his ass. Yeah. yeah. And and one of them is a nondescript human, and the other one happens to be Seston. Right. Is this where the Green Genstone Man is first brought up to, I believe? It is, because Verminard is after the true cleric. He knows. He can feel the cleric in the building. He knows that Gold Moon is close. 
And that is his main deal. He needs to find Goldmoon. He doesn't know that's her name, but he knows that she is she is his nemesis. He instructs the Fumaster to feed the dragon with Sestin and take the human to uh, the mines. Whereas Ember, Pyros, realizes uh, something that he has not told Verminard. Ember is kind of mad because he had the Dark Queen tell him, hey, you got to go serve this guy. And Verminard and, and Ember have been simpatico in that respect. They work real well together. But, you know, Ember's really not happy about that. I mean, for as powerful as Verminard is, just as much as you could use Seston to feed the dragon, you could use Verminard to feed the dragon, too. <laughs> Pyros you is know? a superior being, he, he believes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. However, dragons, Ember has... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, the dragons are the the firstborn on Kryn, before even the elves. Uh, they are the top of the food chain. They regard themselves as the true children of the world. And Ember has been given a secret mission by his queen to look for a man called the Green Gemstone Man. And as Verminard is standing there yelling at Toad, telling him to get the hell out of there with those two crappy-ass prisoners, Ember is excited. He absolutely is off his rocker because he has finally found what it is that his queen has asked him for, the Green Gemstone Man. They, they make some kind of noise, and Ember hears them because Taz wants to... He, he knows that there are big heroes in the world and then there are some people that are just, you know, they can only help the people that they can help. They can solve the problems that they can solve. And Taz knows he can't kill the dragon, but what he wants to do is rescue Seston, uh, who rescued right. them earlier at the slave caravan. Uh, I don't remember the exact circumstances of it, but Taz and Fisben essentially get the attention of the dragon, distract him from Seston, and the dragon goes nuts goes after Taz and Fisbin trying to kill them flying through the fortress. And it's just like a, a big chaotic mess. And is this when Pyros breathes the breathes fire and melts the chain of the wall? It is. The fortress? Because they, yep. Fisban and Taz backtrack the way they came in. And the only way they can get out is to try to climb down that chain. <laughs> and Ember catches them at there and just melts the chain melts the chain which collapses the the wall of the fortress which locks everybody out of the fortress i believe locks the army out of the fortress. locks them in locks them in that's what i meant sorry yeah yeah which is mission accomplished by the way for the for the um the elves mission um so good job taz the only thing that's left in the, the fortress is like a skeleton crew so right. they were being recalled or they were going to be recalled or something. They, yes, they were going to be recalled. Yes. They didn't yes. want Ember to get out because Ember was going to go get the army and tell them to come back. Right. Right. And when this happens, Fisbin dies. Yes. He gets squashed. He gets squished. He, he tries to do, what is it? Featherfall, right? Featherfall. Spell. Yep. And I guess, I guess it, he turns into chickens or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, the way that it's the way that it's written in the book, it's Featherfall is P V E A T H E R F A L L, and when Fizban is trying to to run that spell, he only gets to the to the F, so so it's only feather. Right. So it's it's a bunch of chicken feathers that come floating down, and and Fizban hits the ground with a smack before all the the feathers can gather up and actually catch Taz and Seston before they they die. 
uh, before. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they, right. they make it and Fizban doesn't. Right. Poor Fizban. He's dead. Totally dead. Yeah. Yep. We not knew him well. Not, not, not at all. Yeah. Not ever coming back. <laughs> not ever coming back. Nope. From the dead. All gone. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now let's get back to the other group. What's uh, Karaman and Raceland and Tannis and Sturm and Lorana and, and well, Eben and Tika? What are they up to? <laughs> Yeah, it's everybody else in the party. Their job is to go and release the humans, but Verminard's not an idiot. He has figured out a way to get the men to do his bidding without causing any kind of rebellion in his own in his own house. So what he has done is he has split uh, the men from their women and their children, and the men are all housed in one area. Uh, across a courtyard. The women are housed in another area at the opposite side of the courtyard. And then at the southern end of the courtyard through door or whatnot is another area where they house the children. And the children are being guarded by a very ancient red dragon. She is so ancient that she is basically falling apart. Her real name is Matafleur... And they call her Flame Strike. Flame Strike. That's it. Yeah. So, she is so old. She remembers the first Dragon War, where um, her children, her children were killed in that war by uh-huh. other dragons. Right. So she's uh-huh. adopted the children of the human slaves as uh, as kind of her own. So she's this insane, but motherly and very sympathetic evil red dragon. <laughs> Yes. And as the companions find out when they get to the women's quarters, which is the first place that they are able to go to, um, the women are not afraid of the dragon because they know they know that they that the dragon loves their children and she's she's harmless. They she they actually are kind of glad that the red dragon is there to protect their children because they know that the dragon is not going to let anything happen to their kids. Our fearless heroes make a plan. Part of that plan has them dressing in drag. In in fine Monty Python fashion, yes. They definitely have some problems uh, getting yeah. everyone dressed up in drag. Riverwind is like six feet six. Yeah. Uh, you know, Caramon is, uh, is kind of wide as well as kind of big. And, you know, um, Sturm, you know, they think that Sturm should shave his mustaches because, you know, Oof. they're not many hairy women like that and he's like no effing nope. way buddy i'm not doing that no. there's actually i think uh, uh there's a pretty funny scene between is it caramon and eben and they're dressed in the shawls and the hoods and they're talking in the high-pitched voices like women and <laughs> something like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the plan the pan the plan basically goes like this the women have the women are allowed to go and uh, get the children and bring them out for uh, exercise, feed them and bring them out for exercise. So the companions are going to dress up as women, the ones that need to, uh, and they are going to go with the captive women and go get the children and bring them out into the courtyard. At which point, um, the men will be approached uh, and told, "Hey, this is what's happening. Go out into the courtyard." find your families and then move swiftly to the south 
so that you can get out of here. There's mountains and hills and valleys and whatnot back beyond here. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a running battle. But, you know, if we can all move out in an orderly fashion, we have a much better chance of getting out of here and, and maybe being able to overwinter somewhere and hold off the, the wrath of the dragon right. master. Now, the, the plan goes horribly wrong, thanks to Kith Cannon. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second because I want to I want to backtrack a little bit. They found someone in the human and the male side, the men's side of the human camp, I believe, or maybe it was in the lady side. Anyway, he's well, very. Subjective. They they split them up because they had to tell the men what was going on too. So uh, they sent the warriors with the children because they need to be able to take care of the dragon. Right. Now the women, Gold Moon and Lorana and Tika, they went to the the men's camp to tell the men exactly what the plans were. Right. And they found a man there who um, they found actually many men and there was many uh, seekers from uh, Haven. You know, yeah. it turns out that they were the the false clerics, the ones that we met at the very beginning. As a matter of fact, I believe Hederick is there, too. Yes, he is. Yeah. And and he is uh, he is denouncing Gold Moon. Uh, you know, and they're fighting amongst themselves about how are we going to do this and can we do this and should we do this? And uh, there's a, a man in a very bad condition who is, um, his name is Elistan. He's fixing to die. I mean, he's got like minutes and Gold yep. Moon comes in and heals him. He is one of the few genuinely decent seekers, right? He is, he is one who uh, has a good heart. He genuinely wants to find evidence of divinity somewhere. And here is Goldmoon, this barbarian princess from the plains with the discs of Mishigal, who tells him about the gods who, uh, the, the true gods, the old gods, the gods who never really left, uh, but were here all, all the while. And she heals him, and as she's healing him, she's healing him. She comes to realize that this is the person that she was meant to bring the the, the discs to, the one who would really bring the news of the gods back to the people. Um, so his name is Elistan. Yes, it and is. yeah, and um, he is essentially the Moses to her Aaron, I guess. Um, and he actually, and I, I, I extend that metaphor because when you see him in illustration, especially the Larry Elmore illustrations of Elistan, uh, it's Charlton Heston from uh, like Ten Commandments. <laughs> so it's it's truly everything old, everything old is new again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so the men folk are trying to hustle the children past the sleeping red dragon, and. Uh, Chris, what uh, what boneheaded move does Tannis make next? Well, it's not even a boneheaded move of his own making. I mean, he's just sneaking along with everybody else. He's like, the door is never guarded, but today it's guarded, and yeah. uh, they have to they have to wipe out a couple of draconians before they can get in to see the children. As as they're sneaking by there, there's this humming noise, and and Tannis is looking around trying to figure out where the hell it's coming from. And as they get closer and closer to sneaking past the dragon, the noise keeps getting louder and louder and louder. And everybody starts looking at them. And Flamestrike decides she's going to rise up because she hears it too. It's turns especially out, annoying to Flamestrike. Yeah. Turns out that Tannis's new toy is actually a very 
you're a dragon, you're not really happy about that. <laughs> if you're a worm, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the Sword of Kith Cannon is called Worm Slayer, and it is especially effective against dragons, and it will make this high-pitched whining noise when in the presence of dragons. <laughs> and she she gets kind of aggravated and uh, by that, and she wakes up freaking out that someone's trying to steal the children. So, Which they are, because the children are starting to stream out into the courtyard, being brought out by the women and whatnot, and she's mad now. She's yeah. pissed. It's, it's actually kind of touching, because one of the, the little waifs gets mad at Tannis, who's threatening the dragon with the sword, and essentially tells him, what does she, what does she say to Tannis, Chris? Oh, God, I forget exactly what it is. It's something along the lines of, you leave our dragon alone. Hey, mister, don't you hurt our dragon. So, again, some real brilliant overturning of expectations by Weiss and Hickman in that scene. Uh, because Flamestrike can't approach because she's being kept at bay by Wormslayer, she takes off. She gets into airborne, right? And it's at this point that there's utter chaos now. She's up in the air screaming that they're stealing my children. Ember's up in the air because he's chasing Taz and, and Seston, and he's got a, a bead on the green gemstone man. The the rest of the companions are all in the courtyard trying to get a trying to get the 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 men and the women and the children all together so so they can escape. Verminard comes charging out because he senses the presence of the cleric uh that he's that he's got to take out. Um and that's when they all sort of come together. Um, it, it's kind of a kind of a cool scene where uh, Verminard sort of wades into battle. He's 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 going to slaughter everyone. He sends Pyros up and he says, "Kill the women, kill the men, kill the children." When he says that, when he says, "Kill the children," that triggers something for Flamestrike. She she's got this post traumatic stress um, trigger that takes her back to that first dragon war when her own children were killed. And she goes after Pyros because Pyros is about ready to dive bomb and flame the, the kids. So flame strike goes after Pyros. And now there's a dragon battle in the air over Pax Tharkis between the two giant red dragons. Verminard gets knocked off the dragon. He lands in the courtyard. I imagine him doing that, you know, that superhero fall and land. You know, that <laughs> superhero landing, dance. superhero landing. Right. Right, and, and when he stands up, he's got Tannis, Caraman, Raceland, Sturm in front of him um, with swords drawn, ready to take him out. But of course, you know they're all like fourth or fifth level, and he is like twelfth level or something. I don't know. <laughs> and he's got this really cool weapon called Nightbringer, which is a mace which causes blindness and people that he hits with it. So now we've got this really cool melee where it's our companions, our heroes, surrounding Verminard and fighting him. Um, and at the same time that this is happening, a couple other things are going on. Uh, Lorana, who is in the middle of seeing like these brave people fighting for their lives, kind of has this epiphany and says, look, this is the real world. This is war, and it's not glorious. It's dirty, and people are dying, and people are fighting for their lives, and this is something that I can help with. And she, and that's sort of the moment that Lorana grows up. You've got Eben, who we and we didn't really talk about it because I think it's actually pretty, kind of a dumb subplot. But Eben Shatterstone, <laughs> he's a plant. Uh, hang on, hang on. Now let, let's let's give it at least a little bit of backstory. Okay, we were go talking ahead. about how 
um, there is all of this uh, distrust between the races and whatnot. And Gilfanis is not portrayed as a very sympathetic character for most of what's going on here, because as we've already seen with Sturm and Raceland, actually with just about anybody in the company in Raceland, they don't trust Raceland, you know, because he's got his own ambitions and this and that and whatnot. But Gilfanis gets some of this, too. And it, it, he doesn't feel like he has to answer to anyone. And, you know, Caramon and Sturm at certain different times are like, well, we don't trust this guy. And, you know, and then they find Eben and he's just like this really chatty guy. And, and we, you know, you should trust me because I'm a trusty guy. And uh, <laughs> some of the subplot that goes on during um, the planning stages when the heroes get to the women is uh, there is a short scene where, um, there are some, uh, there's something going on on the outside and several different characters disappear. Gilthanis is one of them. Eben is one of them. And Raceland is actually one of them. So the three people that nobody trusts have all disappeared. And now, oh shit, what has happened? And I mentioned earlier as they were going to get the children that the, that the women told the companions, Hey, these gates are never guarded. And now there's draconians here. So someone has ratted the companions out and yeah. they're not sure exactly who it is. They know it's, they figure out it's not Raceland. However, Gilfanis is still on the hook and so is Evan. When you first read this, think back to, you know, when you were 15, did you really think it possibly could have been Raceland was the traitor? Um, I it could have been it could have been one of those dodges where you didn't see it coming i mean all the really really good writing says you know it that was a good choice for it to be raceland did i yeah. think it was raceland <laughs> i didn't think it was raceland but if they had said haha raceland's the traitor i would have been damn it i knew that <laughs> all right the, the next question is did you ever think it was gilfanis uh, you know trying to betray the group that was trying to help his people escape the dragon armies well uh, how they portrayed him in the book he was kind of a dick and if it suited his purpose to do so could he have done it yeah he could have done it absolutely or third question is it far more likely to be the smarmy new guy that they just met (laughs) (laughs) hey man game over game over for bernard (laughs) (laughs) couldn't be him couldn't possibly be him what why why are you giving me the obvious one it's never the obvious one never <laughs> all right so it was re- the, the traitor is revealed to be eben and he also uh has a bead on the green gemstone man because he spots him he spots the green gemstone man and all the confusion and he goes to grab him nobody really knows why the green gemstone man is significant except the dark queen wants him and wants him badly in the course of this battle, uh, Verminard is just kicking our heroes' butts. I think he made Sturm blind. He knocks Caraman out of it. He takes out Raceland. I think it's really yeah, just- Tannis goes down, too. Tannis goes down. The only thing that stops him is it's Goldmoon, the power of of the new gods of that Goldmoon represents causes a crisis of faith in Verminard. And that crisis of faith gives our companions an opening and they, that's all they need. It's actually, it's actually the dark queen takes her power from Verminard. 
Yes, that's the crisis of faith. Exactly. Yeah. 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 She realizes, oh shit, there's really the everybody's back. I'm not the only god on the planet now. Yeah. So she not only sees Goldmoon, the cleric of Mishical, but she also now knows that there's a cleric of Paladin in the world. Yep. Because Elliston has now become he's now he's healed. He's got the discs. He's on his way to becoming a cleric of Paladin. Um, and he is this prophesied uh, leader to bring the true gods back to the people. And she panics and she withdraws her her power from Verminard. And then that's when that's when the sword goes in. <laughs> I think it's Sturm that first gets him in the gut, gets Verminard. Yep. Yeah, and yep. then Tannis gets him and then then Caraman comes in and and then at that point it's it's all over. <laughs> Verminard is toast. Um and uh, in the skies above, um, Flame Strike sort of is getting her butt kicked by Pyros, um, but in a last burst of energy and, and strength, she dive bombs Pyros. Flame Strike smashes Ember into a mountain. Actually, oh, that's right. And, okay, into a mountain. Yeah, yeah. And the gates you you had started with that part of the story, but yeah. everything is happening contiguous at the same time, and yeah. that's when the gates start to come down. Right. And they get yeah. Eben and they get the green gemstone man too. Yep. Yeah. Right. So as uh, the green, as Eben is escaping with the green gemstone man, Tana sees them get crushed by the falling rocks. So yep. Eben and the green gemstone man are killed now. Yep. And that's, and that's it. Then you've got our heroes triumphant. They get the, the refugees out of Pax Tharkis. They flee South. Uh, the dragon armies are stymied for the time being. That's the end of book two, except we get a prologue, and the prologue is pretty significant. It's epilogue. it's the oh sorry I said prologue epilogue right thank you. Um, it's significant because it's uh, it's the wedding. It's just called Yay! the wedding. Everybody's getting laid. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> Gold Moon is just she's just gonna explode. <laughs> you know, Teak and Caraman don't wait until marriage, but anyway. They don't. They don't have Goldmoon's forbearance. Anyway, they're human. Uh, what do you expect? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the gully dwarves get out. Uh, the humans get out, um, and they're they're in like a grove just in the mountains south, fleeing south. And this is the time when Goldmoon and Riverwind decide they're going to tie the knot. Uh, Elliston is the presiding uh, officiant. officiant. I mean, it's kind of cheesy. <laughs> But there's a big celebration. The humans needed it because they've gone through some real harsh and crazy times. You see the refugees from Solace and Haven and Gateway, the main cities of Abyssinia. There's a conversation that takes place between Tannis and Raislin that sort of is like the the big denouement of the the book. And it's basically, yeah, the... The battle's over for now, but the war really seems to be beginning. And you know, Tannis is talking about uh, the pop, you know, hope returning to the world in the form of the return of the gods. And Raceland's response to that is pretty cynical. Um, he says, "Hope is the denial of reality. It's the carrot dangled before the draft horse to keep him plodding along in a vain attempt to reach it." Tannis says, are you saying we should just give up hope? And Raceland says, I'm saying we should remove the carrot and walk forward with our eyes open. 
How will you fight the dragons, Tannis? For there will be more, more than you can imagine. And here now, and where now is Huma? Where now is the Dragonlance? No, half elf, don't talk to me of hope. They they sort of move away, and we're we're seeing this again through the eyes of Tasselhoff Burfoot as he sort of is eavesdropping on on them. And as he kind of goes about, you know, thinking about what he's just heard from Tannis and Raceland, he sees a white chicken feather float down in front of him, which is, I don't know, a kind of a kind of a neat callback to Fisman. Huh? And yeah. And to the irrepressible nature of Kender as well. It's a great ending. They book two is a action packed romp and the 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 ending kind of ties up everything not everything but ties up like the main action of the book but leaves open so much more uh, and there is a lot to come um they weiss and hickman were given the task of creating an ending for the book even though they they had all three books already plotted uh and they knew the course of where this was going but tsr said you know if this book doesn't sell because they've not done novels before if this doesn't sell. We want this to be done in one. Of course, we now know that it would later go on to become a New York Times bestseller, and um, we would see hundreds more books. Uh, in fact, we've got one coming out in a in in, in a month. That's the, oh, and one thing that we didn't mention is that I think Tana sees the Green Gemstone Man again at the wedding feast. Yeah. Uh, is it Tannis? I forget who it is that sees him, but they his shirt opens up. The green gemstone man's shirt opens up and you can actually see the green gemstone in dude's yep. you know, chest. So Yeah, he, he's just sitting at one of the tables eating some corn on the cob or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, the mist swirl and the green gemstone man is gone. And- yeah, that he's not there, right. He probably yeah. sees that Tannis has spotted him and he gets, he gets lost. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a mystery there. That is not yet explained. Yeah. So overall, what are your thoughts on Dragons of Autumn Twilight? I would have been really, really mad if they didn't make two more books. Yeah. If the story ended there, it would be disappointing. I, I don't think there was any way it could have been. It's, it, it's not a story I think Weiss and Hickman are capable of writing again because they were new writers. They just did stuff that I don't think they would be comfortable doing now. Um, but it is of its place in time, and I never get tired of reading this book. And maybe it's because of the associations that I have with my own, you know, where I was in that at that age, or you know, whatever. But I could pick up Dragons of Autumn Twilight at any point, reread it, and enjoy it. it it's a it's a crap word to use because everybody uses it, but it was seminal, at least for for someone in, in my age group and and the things that I was into at that time the marriage of actual Dungeons and Dragons where you could see all of these characters being what they are. You knew Tannis was a ranger. You knew Raceland was a magic user. You knew, you know, that Karaman was a fighter. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to see the spells and the limitations that they had and, you know, just the little things in there that, that connected the two of those things. It was, and I don't, I don't mean to say this to offend anyone, but it was Tolkien for Dungeons and Dragons. Even yeah. though Tolkien was the one of the inspirations for Dungeons and Dragons, this was, for me, it was what started Dungeons and Dragons to be, you know, a literary force. 
Yeah, no, it was definitely very. Uh, it, bar- it borrows a lot from Tolkien. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, I don't think that would offend anyone to to know that. But okay, so why don't we give this book some ratings, Chris? <laughs> Well, if you give it anything less than an excellent, then I'm going to be mad at you. Okay, then I won't. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start. So again, our our ratings uh, are we rate story, setting, characters, world building, and rereadability. Um, And we rate them on a scale of bad, okay, good, excellent, and legendary. So we'll start with story. So for, for story, for me, um, and I can set this in the context of when I first read it, and I was a teenager when I first read it, I'm going to absolutely say that it was a legendary story. Okay. Legendary, huh? That's, that's, it might be your, one of your first legendaries for story. I don't know. That's, that's pretty impressive. I will... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what I was just going to say, I, I just said it a minute ago. I mean, this this is Lord of the Rings for the D&D set. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't disagree with it. Uh, I, I don't take too much exception to it. I would say excellent. I would say the story is excellent. It, it does. And the only reason I'm, I'm not saying legendary is because it pretty much is Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you you got to take a magical artifact to the the dark place and I, I don't know. It, it, there's you know, the quest, there's the fellowship, there's the, they put new twists on it. And like you said, it's, it's, it's for the D and D set. These are people who know what they're reading. Cause anyone who's playing D and D in 1984 has most likely read the Lord of the Rings. Um, so I'm going to agree with you and say, however, that it's excellent and not let, not let the story itself, not legendary, but excellent. Right. How about well, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you go first on setting. What do you think for setting? Now for setting, I, I same thing. Excellent. I think this is it's your standard medieval Western civilization, high Middle Ages context. You know, you, you got your elves and your dwarves and your magic users and your wizards and it's Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, with excellent on that. We, we always have a lot of bleed over when it comes to setting and world building, but I'm going to make a distinction here because world building, when we get into world building, that's when I'm going to give it a legendary because when you talk about things like the, the towers of high sorcery and the, the Knights of Salamnia, the, the plainsmen and the, the gods and the cataclysm, all that world building type stuff I find to be really great. Also, may be a little derivative, but they do novel things with it, and that's where I'm gonna. That's where I'm gonna throw my legendary. And as long as I'm going on and on, I might as well just say my the rereadability for me is legendary as well. Like I just said, this is a very accessible book. If you had to force me to read this book once a year or every six months, I could probably do it, no problem. <laughs> um, I just I just enjoy it. It's great, and part of that is because of the characters. You you get some standout characters here. I think Tannis is probably the the main character of Chronicles because it, it is all about him reconciling the the divide in his nature. The con that's the conflict of Kryn 
as a whole as well, reconciling this balance between good, the gods of good, and evil, the queen of darkness, and her dragon armies. So, I mean, and Tannis is a great character. Like you said, he's Captain Kirk. But he's not the only great character. You got you have Raceland, who is probably rises above any other character when all of the books are taken as a whole. He's just one of the great characters of fantasy literature. You've got Lorana, uh, Tasselhoff Burfoot, Sturm Brightblade. These are all characters who um, are unique, are different, who have character arcs, who have lives that you you feel when they go through their struggles and their trials. And you really get into their character arcs. It's they're they're all very compelling. Um, Sturm doesn't really get one until next book, but it's a doozy. <laughs> so I, I kind of went through all of the ratings for myself. So just to recap: story excellent, setting excellent, characters legendary, world building legendary, rereadability legendary. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I, yeah. that's I can't I can't say as I disagree with any of that, and. I, I will say this to those who do not know Dave like I know Dave. For rereadability, for him to be able to come out and say straight up, I would reread this every six months just for pleasure, that is huge praise. Kid's got an eidetic memory. So he remember, he has done this entire first book straight from memory and did it way better than I did. And I just read them two days ago or reread them again two days ago. Okay. <laughs> Right. So uh, to get that kind of uh, endorsement is is high praise indeed. Well, thank you for your kind words. I, I appreciate it. I, I, I'm flattered and I'm not sure if I am that person you think I am, but still. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, will not, I will not disagree with any of the ratings that you gave for all of the same reasons. I mean, okay. the, the, the setting is excellent. I mean... And and I will point out here, and it's not that we haven't done it before, but the fact that you were able to play these out, if you so chose to buy the modules to go along with this, you could play this out. So the the setting being accessible and D&D friendly is just awesome. I mean, I don't think they had any idea that it was going to be as popular as it was. They hoped, I'm sure, that it was, but the whole the whole series is just legendary as far as I'm concerned and for the reasons I've already given. Well said. So it's funny. The, the modules, as they were coming out, they originally tried to do uh, a module every couple of months, every month or every couple of months, and they, they did a pretty good job with the first, the autumn series they came out with dl one two three four and five all in 1984 and then of course dragons of autumn twilight came out in november of 84 winter night came out in february of 85 spring dawning came out in i'm sorry not february may may of 85 and then spring dawning came out in september of 85 by that point the modules still had only done another couple <laughs> or three or four of them and it wouldn't be until the latter part of 1986 when all of the modules were finally put out all all 14 of the main war of the lance modules were finally put out at which point the novels had already progressed to the the sequel trilogy the dragonlance legends trilogy so yeah but and i will say this about that only from the perspective of sometimes you don't want to see how the sausage is made 
and I never actually got a chance to play through all the Dragonlance modules. And I'll be a hundred percent honest. I didn't want to play through the Dragonlance modules because I didn't want to see how the sausage was made. I didn't, oh. I didn't want to see character stats. I didn't want to see, you know, anything other than what was already out in front of me. I already had everything fixed in my mind. I'd already read all the stories. I wasn't going to screw it up by going out and playing the modules, oh, but really? I'm, okay. I'm weird that way. So, yeah. yeah. So the thing about the modules is that um, unlike any other Dungeons and Dragons adventures where you make your characters and you bring them to the dungeon master and you play through, you had to play the pre-generated characters. You had to play Tannis and Karaman and Raceland and Sturm. But you, I guess you didn't have to. You they, they, There was always the option to play your own characters, but they strongly suggested that you play the characters, the pre-generated characters, because the story was written around their backstories. Yeah. So, okay. So let's move on to, uh, are we going to do questions three? We yeah. can, if you'd like. Let's do questions three. So Chris, bearing in mind, the first question is, if you could be anyone from this book, who would you be? Um, the caveat is you can't be someone you've already picked from a previous episode. <laughs> so you've. I already picked Tannis. You already picked Tannis. That's right. Uh, so I, I will go with who you thought I would be, which would have been my second choice, which is Sturm. And as you've already mentioned, he gets his um, he gets his big character arc in the next story. So, yeah. you know, maybe I'll hold off on Sturm for now because I, I love his, his, his story coming up. I mean, it just fills him out, fleshes his, him out in such a way that... That's a really good question. I, I hadn't thought of that. So let's go with um, let's go with Eben Shatterstone because I can be a sketchy a, a sketchy dude occasionally. Um, yeah, you have the you have the the mustache for it. Is he even yeah, described no, as having a mustache? I don't even know. I just always picture him with a mustache. I don't know. All I know is it's game over, dude. <laughs> game over, Tannis. Game over. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I mean, I'm uh, hey, look, I'm handsome as the day is long. I mean, that's why I do things where you can only hear my voice because I got a face for podcasting. So <laughs> yeah. you know, and uh, I do come from a household that uh, did make some money at some point and didn't make any money after a while. So <laughs> yeah, that was everyone in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, well, now, would I betray my friends? <laughs> Uh, when I read this book, I might have done that. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Um, so I guess same question to me, huh? Um, yeah, who would you be in this one, Dave? I think I I think this is the time I would go for Tannis. This is the one where I I believe his his leadership. No, I'm going to take it back. I'm not. I'm going to take it back. I gotta walk that one back. Screw that. Not Tannis. Because he's a boob with a whole neurotic kid. Right? He's a dumbass. We've already dumbass. we've already established that. Tannis is a dumbass. I I in that in this case, I am going to go for Gold Moon. Gold Moon okay. did what she had to do. Um, she made the sacrifices to bring knowledge of the true gods back to the world. She wasn't the one to go to the mountaintop, but she found the one to do that. 
Um, and she got her happy ever after with her true love. That's a that's a good way to good way to go, Dave. Yeah. Second question: uh, If you could live anywhere in this world, where would it be? I would <laughs> live in that. I would live in that badass little valley that they found at the very very end. I'd be a happy camper. Ah, okay, all right. Yeah, that is a nice little. Uh, oh, there's a name for it in the module. It's like restful vale or something like that. I don't remember. <laughs> it's a really, it's a really like um, evocative name. Like, oh, we're gonna stay here and frolic in the autumn wind for a little while. Or the autumn the leaves came yeah. blowing from a crop. Where would you live, Dave? <laughs> I was gonna wait for you to finish that. <laughs> <laughs> from across the sea i'm sorry i that no, never mind i could go on forever there go ahead if you could um, live anywhere in this world where would it be Qualanast, i guess i guess i would live in Qualanast, the elven capital um even though it's about ready to get uh attacked by the dragon armies you know what i don't really think they ever attack either i, I think they know that the elves got out the elves escaped i don't think they ever occupy Qualanast. Which is not to say that nothing bad ever happens to Qualanost, because something very bad happens to Qualanost later on. I, um, I seem to, I seem to remember on the dim fringes of my memory, because it's been a while since I reread these, that I believe I remember what it is that happens there. So it, it doesn't wrong. happen in Chronicles. It happens in the War of the Souls, the War, War of Souls trilogy. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. It's You're, bad too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were on the third of the questions three. This is the one. If you could change anything about this book, what would you change? I, I guess if I was going to change one thing, it would be that uh, the way that Tannis got Wormslayer, you know, because, oh, Kith Cannon handed it to me. Mm. OK, come on, man. That's, you know, and, and there's no explanation for it either. It's just like, oh, he handed it to me. Come on, dude. He's dead. Let's <laughs> let's, you know. That's, oh, that's silly. that's what you find hard to believe in this world of dragons and banshees and. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, we've done this a few times already, and more often than not, the, whatever I would change is something really nitpicky. Yeah. So you know, Tannis at the time, at the time I read it, I wouldn't have changed anything. I wouldn't have changed yeah. a word in the whole thing. But a, as an adult now. Uh, and have having read you know a hundred books like this, um, I like a little bit more consistency in my magic. And there's not there's not anything uh, magical about that. You're dead or you're not dead, you know. And if you're undead, then you're mobile. And if you're mobile, you're not handing your damn sword away to somebody else. So what you're saying, Chris, is that Tannis can't expect to wield supreme draconic authority just because some dusty old king pitched a sword at him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well said, David. Thank you for putting the words in my mouth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, if there was anything that you could change, what would you change? I, I think I would change the gully dwarf thing. Just having that race of dumb, dirty stupid just it just i would keep poo poo and i would keep seston in some sense but they don't need to be you know functional morons like the rest <laughs> of the, the like gully doors are are made out to be well i was i was going to make this point earlier when you had mentioned that first and 
I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, people are who they are. And while maybe this, the gully dwarves have not aged well, um, I mean, you can look around in the world as we are right now, and you can see that there are people who are of at this level. Do we make fun of them? No, we do not, because that's just rude and wrong, and you shouldn't do those things. But it doesn't, it doesn't make their existence vanish. So should you use them for a comedic effect? No, you shouldn't. That, you, that's not what you do. But it's, you know, it's, it's not a, there are true to life uh, people who can represent this, you know. Sure. Yeah. And some of them were related to. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's me. <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes it's me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's questions three. All right. So shall we move on to Chris's playlist? Um, we will. And uh, we had mentioned earlier, I don't know if it'll be off air or on air, but we were talking about Rush. And Rush, for anyone that does not know who they are as a band, um, they are very, especially in their early days, they were very, I won't say mystical, as I would say, they do, I mean, they do a song called Bitor and the Snow Dog which is like a song cycle about a hero and a dog. And, you know, he goes off and, and fights the Dark Lord and all the rest of that stuff. As a matter of fact, they've even done a song called Rivendell. So, um, I mean, that's, that's kind of what they do. And while the words don't fit necessarily what it is that we've read here, I, I truly believe that the song itself, the music, and the feeling that you get from the song closer to the heart would actually be pretty apt uh, oh. to describe what it is that I felt, you know, reading this type of book here. Right on. I do know that one. Uh, that's one of the Rush songs that I am familiar with. Why do you think that one is most appropriate for this book? I mentioned that the words are not necessarily right on top of what it is that we're reading here, but the spirit behind it is is of cooperation and of finding your, your own, um, not destiny, but being comfortable with who you are, bringing things literally closer to the heart, you know, finding out that, uh, you, you do need to have love in this world. And, and right now this world needs all of it as much as it can get our own world and, and Dragonlance itself. Cause it's all going to, you know, it's all going to hell in a handbasket here. All right. Nice choice. And now let's listen to a clip from Rush's Closer to the Heart, the song for today's Chris's Playlist. Heart. The blacksmith and the artist reflected in 
Closer to the Heart by Rush. Um, so we're going to go to David's second shelf. Do you have one? Do you have a book to give to us for the second shelf here, David? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, and as I did last episode, I'm going to cheat again. <laughs> now, normally when we do. <laughs> second shelf i try to pick something that either i'm reading now or i'm recently interested in or something um but because we're doing Dragonlance and there is such an enormous amount of material that is produced for Dragonlance, um i thought i would bring up a book that's not that we're not going to cover that's not on the canon uh, although it should be and we might actually now that i think about it may cover it in a periphery episode when we talk about great maps of fantasy literature uh, but the book I'm thinking of is called um, The Atlas of the Dragonlance World, um, and it's by Karen Wynne Fonstad. And I think you know that name, right? I do, yes. She is the, uh, she is the uh, map maker for um, Tolkien as well. Beautiful Middle-earth. Yes, she did um, The Atlas of Middle-earth. Uh, that was her first, pro- her first big project. Um, and she, she's a cartographer. I think she worked for the University of Wisconsin, maybe, or the University of Minnesota, um, one of those Midwestern cold states. Uh, but she did a number of atlases uh, in the uh, genre of fantasy, fantasy literature. The first one was, indeed, the Atlas of Middle-earth, but she also did the Atlas of the Land, uh, the Stephen Donaldson, Thomas Covenant books. She did the... Um, Dragonlance Atlas. She did the Atlas of the Forgotten Realms as well. Um, she did the, I believe she did one or two other ones. Um, I want to say maybe, maybe Terry Brooks, maybe not. I don't know. I'll have to do some research on that. But anyway, the, um, the book is some really great uh, cartographical detail of all of the lands that our companions and main characters explore during the Dragonlance Chronicles. Um, if you want to look at detail of uh, the town of Solace, you can see that. You can see where the end of the last home is before it, the, the big story begins and then after the town was destroyed and the end was on the ground. You can see Darkenwood, the grove of the Forest Master. You can see the detail of Zach Sarath. Um, you can see the plan of the city of Qualanost. You can see Pax Tharkis in all its glory, the Slamori. Um, it's just it's just a real fun book to follow along with as you're reading uh, the novels. Um, the art is, when I say art, the, the cartographical art, the map art, is truly beautiful. Um, and she writes essays about the, 
the travels and the journeys. And um, she even talks a little bit about like geological stuff and weather and topography. It's, it's really so fun. Uh, it's a fun book. It's a great book to have. If you're a Dragonlance super fan, it is a, a necessary book. And unfortunately, I don't think it's in, in print anymore. I think it's another one of those books that you got to go to the secondary market like eBay or Biblio or a books or a Libris or whatever. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of the Fantasy Canon Podcast. Join us next time when we will discuss Dragons of Winter Night by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. This helps us reach more listeners and to do more episodes. Until then, you can join the conversation at www.thefantasycanon.com or send us an email at thefantasycanon at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at thefantasycanon, and you can find us on Facebook at the Fantasy Canon page. Thanks for listening. Namarie. Good reading, D. There's a feeling I get when I look to the West and my spirit is crying for leaving. Funny you should be singing Zeppelin. (laughs) Why? Because you hate Zeppelin. No, I don't. I don't hate Zeppelin. In my thoughts I have seen Rings of smoke through the trees And the voices of those who stand looking (laughs) I don't hate Zeppelin. You do hate Zeppelin. No, I I mean... Yes! (laughs) Why do you want me to hate Zeppelin? Like 20 years ago, dude. I remember standing in the kitchen at your parents' house and you were telling me how much you fucking hated them. I I might have been sick of them at that point. Ah, whatever. Whatever. I was in a, I was in a, was that when I was in that band and we had to sing all that Zeppelin stuff? (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) All I remember is standing in the kitchen at your parents' house having that argument with you. I, I may have tried to take the piss out of you too. Get her eyes yeah, and you also tried to tell me that <laughs> Billy Joel was rock and roll, too. Uh, it's right in the talk song title. It's still rock and roll to me. Yeah, and my argument then is the same as it is now. Just because it says it's rock and roll in the title doesn't mean it's fucking rock and roll. Pop music, great pop music. Really, really good stuff. Rock and roll, not so much. Does it have a backbeat? Oh, for the longest, for the longest longest time. time. (laughs) (laughs) If you said goodbye to me tonight. (laughs) All right, never mind. If that makes it to the end of an episode, I'm going to reach through this fucking microphone and choke you. (laughs) That will.